You're listening to the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast with Nola Heal. Nola has over 30 years of experience in financial and operations management for companies around the world. As a part-time CFO, she's dedicated to working with businesses of all sizes to create sustainable growth and amplify strategy. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Carol Sanford. Carol is an award-winning business educator, summit producer, podcaster, and author. She is a consistently recognized thought leader working side-by-side with Fortune 500 and new economy executives in designing and leading systemic business change and design. Through her university and in-house educational offerings, global speaking platform, multi-award-winning books, and human development work, Carol works with executive leaders who see the possibility to change the nature of work through developing people and work systems that ignite motivation everywhere. For four decades, Carol has worked with great leaders of successful businesses such as Google, DuPont, Intel, P&G, and 7th Generation, educating them to develop their people and ensure a stream of innovation that continually delivers extraordinary results. Carol's books have won over 15 awards so far and are required reading at leading business management schools, including Harvard and Sanford. Welcome, Carol. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. You have a truly accomplished career, disrupting and leading systemic business changes through your speaking and your businesses that you've founded, as well as the work you've done with many companies. And you've found the time to write now six books in between all of this, including the latest, Indirect Work. Can you perhaps take us back with some background beyond the bio of what got you started down this path? Well, no, the the first thank for inviting me. Um, you know, it's almost, I'm so old, it's hard to remember, but a few, a few things that I know were true is I had an amazing, uh, maternal grandfather who was, uh, part Mohawk in, in part of the Iroquois nation. And so he had lived on a native reservation, a first people's reservation until he was 10 when his father was able to leave and took him with him and his mother. Uh, he was very close to me for the first 13, 14 years of my life when he died. But he was very much for taking me out and making me question, making me look at how things work. He raised pigs. He grew uh, crops. He advised through the Farm Bureau how to manage land in a more indigenous way. And this was all in eastern Oklahoma. Uh, and so that in itself had a huge impact on me. It was coupled with one other thing, which was a father who was uh, my very racist, uh, very uh, white supremacist. And um, there's a long story about that too, but uh, he was very much determined to break my will to not be able to see the world in black and white and one was preferred over the other. And with my grandfather, he wouldn't let that will be broken, not because he wanted me to do something to my father, but he just said, that's how he sees the world. Learn that this is about how we view things and how we view things determines how we are in the world and how we engage in the world. So I grew up 
with that every step of the way, uh, even long after he was gone in college and in my work. And pretty soon, even though I still don't consider myself a writer, I had to write. Right. Um, Makes a lot of sense. So that's pretty awesome. I must admit, quite a dichotomy that you had in your formative years there. So, you know, it it naturally has to raise an inquisitive mind and take you down some interesting roads. Now, you say in the, the latest book, um, indirect work that you felt like you had escaped from the cave, pretty much yeah. the cave that Plato writes about in his book, and um, that you progressively gone on to to further expand that that through your work. So, can you give us a little um, explanation on what what you're yeah. thinking there? When I was at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, as an undergraduate, I um, took a class in uh, pre-Socratic philosophers, and I read, well, Socrates and pre-Socratic, and I read Plato of the Republic, and he has an amazing story about how humans are chained in a cave. They're chained to chairs, but their heads facing forward, and what they're looking at is a wall with flames dancing and the fires behind them. So oh. there are shadows. And you can't turn around and see that there are all these shadows and these crazy people holding puppets and being puppets. And so everyone is raised uh, not seeing reality, but seeing the shadows others cast. Well, in the, uh, in the story, one person breaks the chains. And they get out of the chair and they go into the outside world and they discovered that every way they're being raised is to indoctrinate them to a story that's cast on a wall. And the philosopher uh, goes back into the cave and tries to tell everyone, no, you can get these chains loose. You just, you know, described how you get out. And no one believes him. And he leaves the cave determined to try and help People not get locked in caves. I read that book and I said, I want to be a philosopher. I want to do that. And I had grown up with these multiple worldviews. We also had my Christian mother's a very uh, deep fundamentalist view. And I began to be able to see as all this was happening. And I was studying with Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of the Scientific Revolution, about paradigm shifts. So it all shook me up a lot. And it put me on the on a clearer path than my grandfather had started. I could make sense of it because of many things that happened in my childhood. And I still think of myself more as a philosopher than it was anything else. Maybe a bit of an educator, but that's what I escaped from was the what you know, the cave story told me how life was working and what the real opportunities were. Oh, very, very interesting. And I can certainly see the parallels. If you look yeah. at, you know, a, a lot of people, we very much our society is kind of indoctrinated yeah. into 
believing what came before or, I mean, even in, in the process of recruiting people, one of my observations when I relocated to North America was that the majority of people here are recruited for what they've done in the past, yeah. for their experience, rather than their potential. Yeah. And not all parts of the world work that way, but in large part, all society well, does. Well, I understand the title of your podcast now. You just explain that. It's really about what's yet to come or the potential that's there, but not seen because we're stuck on what we already know. Excellent. Correct. There we yeah. go. So there's the connection. Yeah. So now learning for all of us is... Um, at least as much about how one engages with the information you receive as in reading or consuming that information. And the way you've structured this book, you have exercises or intermezzos in between the chapters. Can you perhaps walk listeners through how you see the reader using those and, in fact, how they develop as the book progresses, because I was very fascinated to see well, how you've woven that in. And maybe why in the world did I do that, right? Where did that idea come from? So I'm writing this book, and I have a collaborator that I dictate to. He's a good at cleaning up, good development letter, good thinker. And as we're working, I said, Ben, people are going to read straight through this book and miss the point. That the point is for them to learn to think, to question, not to adopt my ideas. And we worked and we worked and kept, and we we're almost at the end. I said, I can't put this book out because people are going to read it as a text. They're going to underline it. They're going to quote it. They're going to adopt a few ideas out of it. And that's the opposite of what the whole book is about. And I remembered when I was in undergraduate school again, reading a, a set of books called the Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. I don't know whether you read that, but it's the same story told from four different perspectives. And I, I know the teacher who assigned it to us said, we're going to read this book and this and then this and then this. And she didn't say a word about the connection. I was all the way to the third book, well, almost probably in the second one. I went, wait, what's going on here? This is the same story, but it sounds like a radically different story. And I remember my grandfather saying, this is about uh, worldviews. What's your worldview is, well, these were four different worldviews. And I said, I have to create something like that. I can't write four books. Because uh, this is not a novel, and Durrell was writing novels. But maybe I could structure something would slow people down. Well, uh, the way they are is mostly four or five questions to reflect on what happened to you as you just read the last chapter. But they weren't to reflect on what you learned or what you thought or what you argued with. They were to ask you, how are you reading? Are you reading this to borrow my ideas? Are you reading to uh, uh, feel like you can tell people you read my book uh, mm -hmm. or you've got something you want to adopt and put in your program? Because if you are, you miss the point. And then I would do the same thing at the end of the next chapter, different set of questions, but they were all about the reader. None of them were about my content. Or if I said, if you're starting to adapt the content, how can you argue with it? 
how can you look? And I did it the very first internet. So have people form some of their own ideas about how change works and then test those. Well, it turns out about mm, little over half of the people who were pre-readers. Pre I had 160 people who pre-read and then gave me back their reflections. A little over half of them read straight through, underlined, did everything I said. And then I sent back a note and I said, uh, wait, you're supposed to do the exercise. They said, well, I'll do them sometime. Well, those who did the uh, intermezzos, you know, intermezzo is like what goes on in it when you go to the symphony or the opera and you go out and you reflect, right? And you have a, you know, bourbon or whatever you have in your intermezzo, but you kick back and, and pay attention to what's happening to you at the opera. Right. Well, it was astounding to see how even though the book was telling people not to do that, they couldn't see it. The mm. cave, the shadows, the I'm telling them, I'm the philosopher. He came back and said, you're missing the point. You're trapped in copycatting and looking for a template and not thinking for yourself. I am now on book seven. And book seven is a next step up because this one is about how we don't uh, engage with others in a way we free ourselves up. And the new one is more the history of how we were taught not to think for ourselves, how that is the way our school system is, our parenting, every job we have, uh, and how it started with a particular philosophy, a person building a cave with shadows on the wall named John Watson, who founded behaviorism. And behaviorism oh, said people can't think for themselves. They don't have a soul. They don't have a mind. They need experts to do for them. And for the last hundred years, we've only depended on experts to teach us, to grade us, to rank us, to hire us, to punish us. All of it's external. So this book, Indirect Work, was building. I didn't know I was going to do seventh when the day I turned it and I thought, okay, maybe that's enough books. But it took three weeks and I thought, no. Oh, wow. I, I, I forgot to say this most important thing, which is how did we get here and how do we get out? So that's what the, the new book has to have a new kind of structural disruptor. It probably won't be intermezzos, but something that would dis, uh, disrupt the reader to really learn through themselves not through reading a book. Oh, that's fantastic. So definitely something to look forward to, to see yeah. almost how to use the knowledge that one gains in working through this sixth book. Well, learn the knowledge about yourself because this, most people this, read, learn to learn yeah. my knowledge. And I'm wrong a lot. Don't assume I'm right. Don't trust me. Uh, and I give all sorts of ways to challenge. And I have communities. I have several hundred members that say pay an annual membership fee because I never do anything twice. It's always like the next thing. And I tell all of them, do not accept anything I tell you without working it through with your own ex uh, experience your own reflections, your own disagreements, but also do not reject anything I tell you without going and testing it with your life experience. Never trust someone else or you end up with the Hitlers of the world 
and the other autocrats because we're so easy to be indoctrinated. And that's the cave. We're indoctrinated to believe the shadow someone else puts on the wall. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And so developing an inquiring mind and using that inquiring mind is where you, you, you're trying to help us go through the process of reading the book. And I would go one more step. Inquiry is the door, but it's not the room. The room I'm trying to move people into is a methodology of learning how to think. Uh, so we can inquire, but we can inquire without thinking better than we did before we got interested in thinking, right? Yes. So we can, we're still in the cave and think we're uh, inquiring. Well, I'm asking about that shadow, and I don't know it's a shadow. So the reason I run communities, I don't believe we can really develop the capacity to think for ourselves when we're alone, because we fall into our mechanical patterns of thinking, can't see them. I work with something called frameworks and frameworks uh, that I use are drawn from four major sources, indigenous processes where fish peoples uh, bring up people to think for themselves unless they've been colonized. And unfortunately we've done a pretty good job of colonizing many first peoples, but we're all working on it and doing that. Lineage wisdom teachers, people who form schools for thinking, for reflection, for the, everything from meditation to a uh, way of being in the world that's um, uh, more developmental, grows us as people. Uh, the third thing is the new quantum science. Uh, you know, Einstein, all those crazy guys, they say, that we have to get rid of the old physics, the old science that we thought was how you inquire. And we have to take on a quantum science. So the old science is what Einstein, when someone asked Einstein what he meant when he said, don't use the old way of thinking to try and create the new path out of the mess we're in. Now, obviously every range a little, but we, most people have heard the phrase, you know, don't use the old mind to create the, the new path or you'll have the same thing you had before. So when he was teaching at Princeton, his students asked, well, what does that mean? Because you said it 27 times in the last three weeks or some crazy number. He said it a lot. He said, well, Sir Isaac Newton, lovely man. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry telling now. I don't know how he said it, but he was working on something as uh, a rock and we have transferred and, and he was pretty right about rocks. But if you use his inquiry method, you're using what he would call the billiard ball method. I think he meant pool, but pool table, but because he said there are pockets on this table. There are cue balls on the table. Now the pockets represent where you think they should go, what your sustainability answer is, what your uh, voting and how democracy should, you define the pockets. And now you look at these people on the table, these cue balls, and you say, we gotta get these people in that pocket and these people in that pocket. And then you think you're the cue stick and you think all you have to do is hit people toward the pocket you want. He said, 
if we have that way of working the world, we're not working the way the world works. We have to switch metaphors. Now, the metaphor he used in uh, David Bohm and other uh, physicists who worked with him call it the matrix view. So a matrix is the womb or the, the source sourcing for a life that's being born. So if you, I've carried a couple of children, I know what that feels like to have a womb, but you don't get to pick how it works. You try and take care of yourself. You try and eat right, exercise. So the womb, the matrix can be drawn, the uh, infant or uh, if it's um, an animal going through the same thing, it, we're, the animal is not picking what happens to its offspring. What? It can only tend indirectly the matrix. And we now know that many things, uh, well, most things don't work the way the billiard ball table is. You don't get to have your stick determine where people go and which pocket. The minute you work with your stick, the balls scatter and people they bounce back toward you and not go where they want it. Well, Heisenberg principle says, if you move one thing, so many things move, you have no control. You have to think of the matrix and keeping the matrix healthy. That's what I talk about in this book. How do you work to keep the matrix healthy so that the newborn creates its own future, its own life and its own destiny? And that's a much healthier metaphor, which Einstein encouraged us to live our life from. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Does. So in the book, you used uh, basketball coach Phil Jackson as yeah. an excellent example of someone who actually didn't coach in the traditional sense right. of drills and and plays he used indirect work yep. so can you give us a bit of a an explanation of what is indirect work and how did he accomplish the work without being a, a conventional coach right so the first time I heard the story about Phil Jackson I thought of the cave uh and by you know what happened with that philosopher getting out and Phil Jackson, just so people know uh, the power of this, he is the winningest coach in the National Basketball League in history. He has 11 rings. In fact, he wrote three, four books. And one of them is called 11 rings. And they're the rings that they give the coaches and the players if they win the NBA. Uh, and the, I, I grew up uh, with football and basketball. And so... The man mm -hmm. I heard about him, I was very, very curious. I wanted to know how he got to be who he was. And he coached the Chicago Bulls and the LA Lakers both several times to those rings. What he did, and most coaches went out and said, drill, 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 run this route, run this route. Okay, he's our strongest player. Always get the ball to him. Get in the the three-point ring, and they had all these instructions and how you play, and they would punish people and put them on the sideline. If they went out the night before, uh, you know, they were in trouble the next day, and mm -hmm. they incentivized them with money, and uh, all of it was about win, win, win uh, with a way to play. But Jackson said, don't look at the scoreboard. Look at how we are working together. 
he had, he worked with a guy named Tex Winter. And well, I think Tex figured out the system, but uh, Jackson Foley, which was, it was about making sure there was an equal uh, engagement and contribution of every player. And you didn't have stars. You gave up the whole idea of being stars. Mm -hmm. And instead, everyone was expected to um, play so that they were mostly giving other people the ball until it was a perfect shot and then it went in. Now, he did some other crazy things, which is during the halftime or in practices, he had people learn to breathe together so they could feel the energy of one another. So he would on the bench say, all right, just sit, pay attention to your breath. Now, notice as you're breathing that you have people on either side of you and you can feel their breath. And notice that without trying to do anything, you tend to breathe in sync. And just let that happen and pay attention. And then talk about what it has to do with us playing basketball. And people say, well, we have to breathe together on the court. The other thing he did a lot of was connecting them to uh, young black men. Of course, a large percentage of the players he worked with were, were young black men at one point, And they had suffered and struggled. And he said, if they could see you not driving for self-aggrandizement, you know, all for you, but for the team as a whole and for young black men coming up to be able to see themselves making a difference by breathing as one. Mm -hmm. uh, he had, and I give many more examples of the exercise that he did. Uh, so this changed the culture of his team, not other teams. People tried to copy it. And they never understood how indirect work happened. They try and do a little of what he did, but still drive them to the basket, drive them to uh, the bank uh, <clears throat> and to being famous and what could happen to them. Now, he got a lot of what he did through the same place I had been looking, which made me very interested in him. I had a, a Mohawk, he had a Lakota connection. Mm -hmm where he spent time with Lakota elders and how they brought up young men and taught them that it was for the tribe and the system as a whole, not for any individual young man. So he got his players to know they were raising a culture of healthy, vital, contributing young black men who could see another way out. Um, so I use him through the book to show what I know, and I've read everything he's written, everything that's been said about him for decades, uh, and felt so honored to even know that he existed, even though I never met him. Uh, and I feel like anyone who reads this book would understand, I felt like people would see what it meant to not go after the goal and everything directly and mandate it, you know, this a billiard ball, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of being the coach who says, these are my players and I want them in these pockets, he said, I have a matrix to nurture. And that is the culture that we're all in. And he couldn't change the whole industry, but who knows? Uh, he's still alive. He's not coaching for a long time. But I think he will continue to have an influence. Absolutely. It makes an awful lot of sense. And he's actually uh, an excellent example 
of one of the other comments you made earlier, where we need a different kind of leadership in order to get ourselves as the world or society out of the mess we're in, quite yeah. honestly, that we do need to do something different. We can't do more of the same and expect a different outcome right. going forward. So where do we even start? Do you have any thoughts on how society goes about getting oh, yeah. more people on track? Um, well, so getting them on track sounds billiard ballish, right? No, I get them, but the um, if you would do it indirectly, mm -hmm. you have every place you have an opportunity to work with people, whether it's your own children, whether it's a classroom, whether it's uh, your supervisor in a, an, in, an organization or some kind of institution to do this indirect work. But it's hard to stop being the, quote, leader. So mm -hmm. I tell people first, they have to give up the idea of they are the leader. What Phil Jackson said is, I'm not in charge. Uh, you know, don't even think of me as a coach. Think of me as uh, one of the, the text makes people in the field. I have to be breathing with you. I have to think with you. <clears throat> I'm not in charge. When you're out there, you're doing it on your own. So I'm going to build, this is first clue, build your capability to think for yourself, to see the effects you're producing in the world, to see the the uh, camaraderie, the ability to work in uh, a powerful way together. Uh, and so he spent a lot of time teaching people exercise, like the breathing one was to see how they work together. Mm -hmm. He also got them to learn to see that the world existed on different planes. And I don't talk about this one in the book because it's a little hard to explain. But he would ask them to look at something first like, Look at these young black men as things, you know, a number of them. So they're what percentage of them are this, what percentage are that, what are their uh, criminal records? He said, you could look at them as a thing. So they'd talk about their one. He'd say, how does that feel? They'd say, painful. Uh, okay, well, let's look at it as a process. So they're in a process. They got here somehow. They're on their way to something else. Uh and you can think about them as not stuck, but moving somewhere. And, he, and he'd say, now, how does that feel? And they'd say, well, better. You know, you don't mm -hmm. feel like they're a thing in a number somewhere. It's okay. Now, look at some specific young black men, you know, and think about what's their essence. What is it about this young man, this James, you just told me his name of, or a young, and he did say women, but they were all men, so he was working mostly on men. Uh, it got men to read my book, too. Each of them has an essence, has a heart of who they are, not their strengths, not their personality, but something very deep about who they were. And this apparently had a huge impact on Michael Jordan at the Chicago Bulls. When he came to understand there was something about him, and he had work to do in the world, and it was at the core of him. And so then... Jackson would say to all of them, how does that feel to think about each one of them having an essence? And they would go, that is so uplifting. Right. And so one of the things we have to do is quit thinking of people as numbers and just on a journey and see each of them as unique 
And you can do that with every child in your family, in your classroom, uh, that's in your stewardship, in a job, uh, that's in your district if you're an elected official. And don't make them generic. Don't lump them together. And so that's one of the first, first of the three things I talk about in the book, that we have to build capabilities to see the world different and to walk ourselves through it not be trapped in the cave with the shadows. Mm, makes a lot of sense. So that's a very large goal. One could describe it as a goal for the world, is to begin to think and act different so that we can improve things. But at the same time, you do also suggest that goal setting undermines the intelligence yeah. of, let's call it both parties, if it's a an individual with a person working for them in a company for argument's sake. So what is a better alternative than trying to jointly set goals and walk that particular ring-fenced road, shall we call yeah. it? Uh, well, first, I don't think what I've said is a goal at all. I think it's a purpose. Because the goal is you can cross the finish line and you're kind of done, right? You've got a goal or a score. Mm -hmm. Um what we want to work with is, uh, and also goal is like a pocket on the billiard table or the yeah. pool table, right? We sit there, we set them together, but still it's all external. It's all uh, not about growing us. If we, I think what we want to uh, appraise and assess ourselves is how we're evolving, how we're growing. Uh, in the communities that I work with, I would say to people, the question is not whether you have accomplished something or even necessarily uh, if you're just on the path. The question is, do you feel like you're evolving? Do you feel like you're growing as a human being? And even the large companies that I work with, like DuPont and Colgate and Google, we don't set goals for people to shoot for. We instead look at effects you want to create in the world, like young black boys seeing the world that they could be in and the possibilities that can happen for them. Uh, and Jackson never said, here's the goal with those uh, kids. He asked each player to think about how he envisioned the potential, your word, mm -hmm. the potential of each child in them seeking what they were after and come to understand uh, as a person, you come to understand what they're pursuing, not your goal for them, not even as a company. So in, I'll tell you a story out of South Africa. Um, we had, uh, and I had an opportunity to work with Colgate in South Africa Absolutely. as they were coming out of apartheid, right? And still are coming out. But oh, yeah. uh, they uh, never quite get there. Uh, goal not achievable. Um, what we did was ask people what they thought was missing in capability in the townships to be able to do well and in the company to be able to do well, not do a specific thing, but what's the capability. And all of them said something like, well, I don't have a way to contribute directly that I know what the impact is. So we redesigned work system so that people chose what they were going to be contributing to. And we did have corporate goals in New York that they had to meet, mm -hmm. but those turned out to be so far exceeded by just building capability for personal agency among every worker in the system, 
among their uh, locus controls that they felt in charge because they could initiate, include, build teams, go out and create small businesses in the townships, help Mandela set up township councils. All of those things were capabilities that were built. That's the better way not to organize some external goal, which defines, predefines all the pockets mm -hmm. on the table, but enable each individual to uh, have their own agency in making a difference. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense in from the perspective of activating the interest, the drive, the the entrepreneurial spirit, for want of right. a, a better description, in absolutely everybody within yeah. your company. And probably the the morale improves and so many other benefits as well, because people are almost setting their own objectives and it's for a greater accomplishment together. They aren't hitting their own objectives. That's the key. They don't have objectives. No. They, yeah. What they're doing is enabling others to uh, achieve theirs. They're providing support for them. The other uh, benefit, with, you know, I'm sure you hear this all the time, um, that we want the best talent. And we go out and we want to retain our talent. Well, this way of working, where you're building capability, everywhere. we had over 3,000 people in Colgate, Africa. Uh, and every one of them became a leader. Every one of them initiated. And we didn't have to do anything but say, what is it we ought to be working on that Colgate makes sense for them to support? So... Isaac Bichiel is an example of one of those 3,000 who said, we have terrible oral health in Soweto and Alexandria, the two biggest townships. I think we could do something about that. And we could build economic development if we coupled women who are the leaders in the township mm -hmm. with dentists who educated them on oral health. And they were able to educate all the parents and the kids, the older kids, about oral health, and it's important. And we could help them sell toothpaste at cost. So it was not designed to be a money-making effort. Uh, but the women could make money. We would make a little bit. It would be consistent with what we believe in. And they pretty much reversed the decline and started to build a steady improvement in oral health among the 15-year-old and younger. Uh, from doing that. That was one guy who initiated Fantastic. that and then pulled together a team of people, the dentists. And uh, he had never been in a uh, public school. You know, black mm -hmm. were Lots forbidden. Lots of haven't. Yeah. Well, they were forbidden for yeah. decades, only about 30 years now. And uh, one of the things I said to say, well, sales and I said to people when they said, well, what do you mean we're going to promote all these black Africans into executive branch? And Sato said, do you know what intelligence they've had to build with 30 years, well, with over 100 years of apartheid and surviving and doing well? And they have learned to lead. And luckily, they were not in our school system. That's what he said. There you go. Because yeah. They learned to think better. And we, we proved that we had economic or revenue growth of 35 to 60% or 65% mm -hmm. 
per every six months, not even per annum, uh, because we were building so much capability. Now, we didn't have to go look for talent. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to retain talent. We had it growing in so much depth that you you had more people were trying to steal our people because they were so good. And every one of them had so much agency and we were building capability to be self-managing. Now I taught them how earnings margins and cash flow work. So they understood how that would not, how you count it, but how you make it and what it takes to pull that off. So they knew they, they had their measures and their ways of working uh, with that. And they learned about valuing processors from earth to earth and how you uh, manufacture and ship and distribute and uh, recycle. And uh, we had the whole stream of it. So the benefits were huge, which was your starting point here, that there's so much gained by the company. And there was so much gain by the townships and by South Africa itself that Mandela gave them an award called the Constitution Award. I'm pretty sure he made it up for the, none of us had heard of it before he had this meeting and they got handed this little plaque. Um, But the one thing that they did, which was the benefits of South Africa, the Constitution required that the, within five years, the top of the organization had to reflect the social, uh, the racial mix of the population, right. well, population was what ninety-seven percent black, three percent white, and the top of the company was flipped. You know, mm-hmm. it was ninety-seven percent white. We had one black man who had gotten a PhD in chemistry, uh, going to Oxford, and no one else had been to school. He, of course, he had to leave the country to do that. But we, within six months, flipped that and had 97% black leaders, and immediately the money took off. And we didn't, uh, I say we, I didn't do anything, but I feel a part of it. So I always say we, uh, no one was demoted. No one was fired. One Afrikaner left because he didn't, he just didn't believe. Didn't think. It it felt wrong. So that was what the Constitutional War was for. As Mandela said, I was in the back of the room, said, proving to the world that black Africans can lead companies and you know, we can do what we promised to do. So, yeah. That is such a fantastic story I know. because and all I that come was, from South Africa and oh yeah, I thought you must so you much talking. of that, what was labeled reverse discrimination yeah. failed quite honestly because yeah. neither party benefited from it because it was forced and, and imposed. So depending on which which side of the, the fence right. you sat on, you believed it was was imposed or someone was benefiting through no effort of their own. But both parties lost, quite honestly, because the person yeah. forced into the role didn't want to be in that role. Yes, so they were given yeah. a big salary and they were poached from company to company. But they didn't feel like they were contributing and accomplishing. Whereas with this model, um, for one thing, it it frees people from the trends. Because, yeah, going through the schooling system in South Africa was very prescriptive. I mean, there I I remember 
um, being forbidden to listen to certain music. Yeah. Because it it spoke of uh, rebellion among the the, the the native populations. And, right. yeah, I mean, we, we were forced to do really, really crazy you things. You were chained to your chair and we, forced to face a wall of shadows by the yeah. people dancing behind them. Yeah, so and any of us that tried to kind of break those chains – you know, as you went through the schooling system, you were sharply wrapped back into position. You you know, I mean, so it caused so much dissonance within people who, because my particular generation, I think we were seeing the light in the sense that there was a lot of disruption and people wanting to debate things in different ways to develop their own thought processes. And, I mean, it was taboo. We certainly were not encouraged to do anything of the sort. No, no. face the shadows. Keep your eyes on the dancing wall. Yeah. Well, and the fun thing about this is indirect work is how we did everything. We didn't prescribe. We didn't didn't act as the cue ball managers and the cue stick. and many people who've read all six of my books said this one, indirect work, explains to you what was behind all the others. And I thought, yeah, I think that's true because I do in my third book, The Regenerative Business, describe the flow of about 10 companies that we've done this with. And by the way, they're very easy to undo. Uh, and in South Africa, the person who came in behind Stato's undid everything we did made all the people go back to the detergent tower. He couldn't undo the constitutional mandate, but he but he undid the, the freedom that people had to exercise the agency, and they began to lose money. He was pulled out. Somebody else put in. But as uh, Isaac used to call me, and it terrified me because it would cost him a day's pay to make a phone call to me, but he needed it for spirit after I was thrown out when you know, the the Nazi, self-proclaimed Nazi came in. Uh, and he said, the real thing, Miss Carol, is you can never take it out of me. You can yes. take it out of the company, but you can't take it out of me. And he took it uh, into the councils that met, you probably knew, the township councils that were set up by Mandela. Well, many of the people who were in Colgate with us were on those councils. And they took it into the governing processes of the townships and into the businesses that the women were running. So even though you can undo the form and the infrastructure we put Mm -hmm. in, you can't take it out of people's being. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and that is the repair that we need to accomplish in society is to free people progressively from the chains so that they start to think and see and act differently and almost create a bit of a groundswell that does accomplish these things in small pockets initially and and hopefully let's start turning the world around in some of our problem areas and remove Uh, some of the destruction. Book seven is my what we have to change in the education system, the parenting system that will make all this pretty quickly move forward. Because I watched it move. I was there not even three years, and I watched how fast 
Now, part of that was that there was a hunger among the black Africans particularly, but even among the white Africans, they no one wanted to live with bulletproof limousines and glass and barbed wire, you remember all that stuff on top of fences mm -hmm. and walls. Every time I came to the airport, I was picked up by a bulletproof limousine and cars. It was horrible. No yeah. one wanted to live that way. Uh, and so it moved quickly and people would say to me, I was only there for a week uh, every other month. Like it was a long trip. Mm -hmm. And they said, you have to come more often. We're using everything you give us immediately. And I could see it. And they were extrapolating and they were taking it out. So I know it can move quickly. And in some ways, that's what book seven is about. How our education system, our parenting system, and particularly the people who call themselves psychologists. Are, and I studied uh, for a doctorate in psychology so I can be uh, berate them. Uh, are are becoming the glue that sticks things to the seats with the chain. Mm. And so I've got a an idea about how we might engage and that book will be called No More Gold Stars. And oh. it will be out in 2023. Oh fantastic. We don't even have to wait that long. You're on oh. track already to give us some more to consume and, and to spark the, the thought processes yeah. and the and and that hunger to want to do and think differently because yeah. once one thinks differently you act differently as exactly. well so that's pretty fantastic so through the process of your career you must have had a lot of challenges along the way do you have any particular techniques and secrets that you can think of that you use to get yourself unstuck in any of those moments well I don't know any techniques but uh I mean, I'm not a big fan of techniques because I think they're prescriptions and people try and say, it's simplest. I think there are two, uh, three things that one has to do to keep growing. One is be in a developmental community, a community of people like that's why I formed a community so I could keep growing. Well, I got several thousand people now who are in my business and change agent. But you have to be in a developmental community, one that wants to grow people so they don't keep seeing the shadows on the wall. Secondly, you have to have a methodology that is lineage tested. I mean, no pop psychology, or no pop techniques. You have to go be immersed in a methodology that shows you how to work. It's indirect, like, well, like Phil Jackson was doing and like I do the best that I can every day. And the third thing is you have to be applying it in the world because if you have techniques, you sit somewhere off by yourself and try and get yourself unstuck, that won't work. You got to be in some value adding process, I call it. So yeah, what's, what helps me is always saying, uh, like I have this coming weekend, one of my weekend events, we have eight times a year and I, when I'm starting to feel like I can't figure out what to do, I think about those people and they're in the community with a methodology. And my work is to bring what I am guessing will give them capability to do what they're trying to do in the world. So it's the external considering. If I'm wrapped up in me, I'm no good to anybody. But I have a community and I invite anyone who's interested to let us know we do most of it nowadays online, some local. 
uh, and then make sure it's a tested methodology and put it to work. Fantastic. So that actually brings us to a really good point. Do you have any thoughts that you'd like to close on, perhaps anything we haven't discussed? And then also, how do people get in touch, learn more, um, obviously access the book and your communities? So the way to follow up with me or a book or anything is to go to my carolsanford.com website. It's all about me, right? C-A-R-O-L-S-A-N-F-O-R-D. There you'll find my podcast called Business Second Opinion, all six of my books, and the uh, bonuses you can get still right now for buying indirect work. But it'll show you all six books and how they fit together. Um, it has a, a lead to my two communities, one for businesses and one for individual change agents. And you can follow those links at the bottom and find out more about uh, the, I have annual summits uh, for individuals and for business people. And there's leads to those also. So uh, please follow up with me if anyone cares and there are contact forms on there so you can get to me. Oh, that's Noah. fantastic. Thank Noah. you so much, Nola. I greatly, greatly enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, it's an awesome opportunity just to expand the mind, you yeah. know, and, and, and become potentially where it starts is become more aware that we are sitting in chains in so many of these areas. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, even through your work, you've found that people escape the chains in an area but there are actually other chains just because of the way we've lived our lives yeah. and continue to there think. There are millions. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for the opportunity to chat today. So much more to explore. And I will certainly put the links on the show notes page so that people who want to access more and come and take a look, get in contact, can do that. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. The Unlocking Business Growth Podcast is sponsored by Protea Consulting Professional Corporation. We help our clients translate their operating and accounting data into the strategy for business growth they're truly capable of. Subscribe to the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify to hear from other companies that have overcome growth challenges. Get a free copy of NOLA's latest book, the 5F strategy, bottom line growth in any economy without additional sales and marketing. And download the financial growth scorecard at proteaconsulting.ca. Work with us to achieve your business potential. To find out if we're a fit for your business, email info at proteaconsulting.ca and follow the Unlocking Business Growth podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook. <laughs>